1: this thing reaches as deep and goes as high as we think it does. These men will do anything not to be exposed. Julia Roberts, Denzel Washington, The Pelican Brief. Welcome to Adaptation Nation. It's our show where we read the thing, we watch the thing, we talk about the thing. Joining me today is Amanda Nelson. Hello. We're back. (laughs) You were here for Dune. We had a great time with Dune. Got some good feedback on Dune. Having a good time. We're going the other way from Alcorant, zeitgeist Zeitgeisty to probably no one thinks about this movie except for us. (laughs) Territory, uh, maybe a little bit. (laughs) That's fair. Um, (laughs) We're doing the Pelican Brief. Uh, the book by John Grisham, the movie written and directed by Alan J. Pakula. Uh, Pakula? Pakula? I couldn't find a pronunciation, so I'm going to Pakula because that's what comes naturally to me. Apologies hmm. to Alan if that's wrong.
0: Well, he's dead. He doesn't care.
1: <laughs> he doesn't care. But, you know, you try to get the names right. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done So far, we've done Casino Royale, Wheel of Time, and Dune. And each one of those we had a hook, right? Yeah. Wheel of Time is new. Uh, Dune was new. And then Casino Royale was the end of the Craig Run as Bond, right? Mm-hmm. And also, you know, there's sort of—I I don't think it's the slightest of hooks. Like we're not really rationalizing. It was like let's go back to the beginning and talk about the Craig Run and then that Craig Bond. And then the book is so interesting too for all the reasons Vanessa and I talked about there. Go listen to that. With the Pelican Brief, there's no real reason to talk about this now, is there? A I that, like it. Any, I've got a I've got a rationalization. Would you like to hear yes, my rationalization? Yes. Denzel. Okay. And Denzel is starring in maybe my most anticipated adaptation oh, of 2022 yeah.
0: the as Macbeth. Macbeth.
1: Yeah. And looking look real awesome in that book. Uh, directed by Joel Cohen, mm-hmm. Friends of McDormand as Lady Macbeth. You've seen the trailer. If you haven't by now, go look at it. Shot in black and white. It looks fantastic. Denzel's already done Shakespeare, did much ado right before the Pelican Brief in 1992. Interesting. Lee, mm-hmm. so I. I I when we made our list of things we might want to talk about, I put Pelican brief on there and both of them and I was like, let's talk about this. Then I we I bumped Denzel up because I wanted to talk about Denzel before Macbeth. And I think we probably will do an episode on Macbeth, because another thing that came up in talking about how to program for this show, this is a little insider baseball, mm-hmm. is on bookriot.com and our, our sister adjacent, and all of our properties on the newsletters, podcasts, whatever, we care and build into our editorial practices diversity mm-hmm. right we want people to be represented at least sort of in very like broad strokes sort of how it is in america yeah. how many people of color women so on and so forth now literary adaptations is a problem for a couple of reasons one is all the structural stuff in publishing is triply so historically for all
0: <laughs> seriously <laughs>
1: yeah. right so not only is it hard to have a book adapted in the first place, uh, especially before the great adaptation Gold Rush of the last few years, which gives us a lot more interesting um, and diverse properties, but before now, it's va- there's just not that many books, Amanda, mm-hmm. that got translated by authors of color into movies. There's like the Joy Luck Club and the Color Purple, and the- you can name them on one hand, the ones that we could talk about kind of off the cuff at a cocktail party. Mm-hmm. And so we broadened our vision a little bit. It's like, what does it mean to have an inclusive film adaptation, we said one of the things that I think matters is if it is one of the stars, a person of yeah. color, and that opens up a little bit, and I think that 's especially fascinating in the context of the power oh yeah <laughs> so we're get into that and all the reasons here so I think that 's another reason because denzel is a singular like there are singular figures in Hollywood, and I think Denzel you kind of have to do a Sidney Poitier to Denzel to Will Smith, kind of the black leading like the biggest if you 're going to be one of the biggest stars in the world. Sydney Poitier wasn't on Denzel's left, but Denzel created, mm. inhabited, the world is ready for, a black man is one of the 10 biggest movie stars in the world, yep. Amanda. And this is coming at the height of his first great period. He's after glory. Mm-hmm. Um, he's doing all kinds of interesting stuff. He's had... He's had a very interesting career, highs and lows, like anyone who's been in this business a long time would be interested, especially we talk about Julia Roberts, the other lead. But I think Denzel is the reason to talk about this movie, both as because I think, frankly, for me, his performance as Greg Grantham is the best part of this movie. <laughs> yeah, I agree that. And then he is a fascinating figure. And then as an adaptation question, Denzel Washington played Greg Grantham, who is obviously and meaningfully white in the mm-hmm. book, as a black man, is a fascinating choice that has interesting ramifications for us to talk oh. about. <laughs> Yeah,
0: I felt a little squirrely, personally, picking this one for the next show, just because we had done a run. You know, the first three books were by white men, but Dune had a really diverse cast, and so does Wheel of Time, and I don't want Mm -hmm. to act like those things don't matter, especially now and after this summer we had last year, so... I Denzel Denzel is such a fascinating actor to me because I think that he was really on track to be like America's dad like it was him or Tom Hanks like these were going to be our dads right and then Denzel started playing a string of like terrifying sociopaths and he plays them so well Mm -hmm. that I think people were instinctively like "Ooh, (laughs) I don't want him to be my dad he might kill me in my sleep. He's like so good at it. Or
1: I want him to be my dad if he has to kill someone. For for me, me. right? If you if you need revenge, dad, you get if you get Denzel. You want Christmas morning, dad? I guess you get Hanks. Is that what we kind of?
0: Yeah, because like after this, it's like Training Day. You know, like all of these movies where he plays somebody. one
1: two three, man on fire, John Q. Oh God, man on fire. All (laughs) very similar.
0: Yeah. And he's just really scary. He's just really scary. But he's not scary in The Pelican Brief. Everyone else is scary in the uh book and the movie which i guess we could talk about later that was
1: your our our sort of uh, preamble texting mm-hmm. when we were getting ready like we decided we'd do it put it on the schedule and there's always a period of like whoa i haven't read this or i haven't read this in a while and what do you see and mm-hmm. yours was everyone's terrible yes in the book, pelican brief everyone like everyone is, is bad and it doesn't really translate that way to the movie no. but i think in the book it's 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 very very bad mm-hmm. okay we're gonna get into that in a second so why do this episode now Okay, we want to we, we want like to. it. It's an interesting transition. I also think the other thing is now that we are fully in the Grisham is background. Mm noise of the publishing industry. And, and, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, like literally background noise. And like, there's a lot of Grisham books out there. They sell very well. He's been around 30 years, sold, you know, half a billion. I mean, I'm not joking. Yeah. That's not a hyperbole. Half a billion copies around the world and largely irrelevant yeah. at the same time in, in talking about books. But there was a time, and this was the beginning of this five-year run between 92 and 97 or 93 to 98. I can't quite remember, but there's a five to six-year run starting with the firm. And ending with, I think, The Chamber was the last one, where there was a Grisha movie every year starring kind of the the dude of the the moment. The dude of the day. all the rest of them are, you know, the dude of the day. Denzel, I think, because of racially Mm -hmm. an outlier to some degree, though it makes perfect sense in a lot of other ways. And then in 98, the the Grisha moment's kind of over as being relevant other than something, something you read at the airport right? And which is fine. And that's probably Grisham has subsidized a bunch of books you and I care about at at the various publishing houses he's been in. But in terms of like, what are the best books of the year? What are you recommending to people? Mm -hmm. I can't think of when I would ever recommend a John Grisham book um, necessarily. I'm certainly not going to recommend the Pelican Brief. And now they get turned into, if they get made into a movie, it's like a painted house or Christmas with the cranks. (laughs) Like the, the legal thriller for which Grisham is the I guess, the, the, example, the exemplar, which we can talk about, too, the legal thriller genre. But, like, what was John Grisham? You know, that, that kind of an internet meme that you see for, like, what was John Grisham? And I think that's interesting and worth talking about, too, as a... Because I'm 15 when this starts happening. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm this is my cultural consciousness is coming to bear, both sort of nascently, politically, and artistically and, and culturally. So the Pelican Brief with Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington, who at the time... I didn't do a power ranking, but we're talking two of the 10 biggest movie stars in the yeah. world in John Grisham, which is now the biggest author in the world. Like, this is a huge deal in 1993. Was it a huge deal to you? Do you remember this at all when it came No, out?
0: <laughs> I don't. I remember by the time I got around to it, it was like doing its cable run where, you know, that period mm. in like the late 90s, I guess, or maybe it was the early 2000s, where it was just always on. Like, the sh- like Shawshank. Yes. Like Shawshank is always right. on Turner Classic Movies or whatever channel it's playing on, and the Pelican Brief was on all the time. So I must have seen it a time. floppity jillion times. My like sense memory of it is watching it in between like NASCAR races and football games on Sundays with my dad. <laughs> like that is what right. it was: NASCAR, Pelican Brief, football. <laughs>
1: That's what we did. If it wasn't the Hunt for Red October oh, yes, for you, yeah. and Amanda, it was uh, it was the Pelican Brief, and I think. Now the firm was the big hit, mm-hmm. right? Cruz. That's the first one that comes out, made two hundred seventy million dollars internationally, which is a big hit, a huge hit, especially in nineteen ninety three. Pelican Brief came after, not quite of a biggest hit, a hundred and uh, let's see, a hundred and ninety million dollars on a forty million dollar budget. Also the kind of movie that doesn't get made anymore mm-hmm. for reasons we can talk about. Um, essentially no special effects. There's no IP except that, I guess Grisham and Denzel. Are, I mean stars are. IP when you think about it of a certain kind of context, but they don't really make these kinds of movies anymore. And I've got a theory for you. We talked about this a little bit about the, the legal thriller, what happened to Grisham, what happened to this idea of legal thriller. I've got a couple of confluences mm. that I want to throw by you about why the Grisham thing became, you know, now another name like the Ludlums, Pattersons, uh, uh, Nora Roberts of the world, which people like them and read them. But no one sort of cares about them Mm -hmm. culturally. I also have a theory. So a couple of things. Go. go. Okay. You go first. You go first. Uh, I've said enough.
0: Um, I think the legal thriller um, took a sort of political turn where lawyers were no longer acceptable heroes. Um, Mm. They're still acceptable villains. But the kind of audience that this book is aimed at, which is like middle-aged white men... Took a political turn from venerating really competent lawyers to venerating really competent soldiers and cops. So now we have NCIS, we have the Bourne movies, even the resurgence of the Bond movies, or maybe not resurgence, but like just inability to get rid of the Bond movies. Um, those are the sorts of things I think this audience, this intended audience, is super super interested in now. And I don't know that it's a uh, like a complete one hundred and eighty. Like these are very similar kinds of tones of books um but lawyers tend to be very intellectual they often go to really elite schools um they have a lot of power they're in a lot of inner circles and those are as we have seen recently not the sorts of things that 50 year old white men are interested in like rooting for anymore Um, so i think that's part of the reason why over time this kind of thing from John Grisham became less and less what people wanted to read or watch or less and less what these people wanted to read or watch. And I was like, I know I'm speaking in generalities, but that's what marketing audiences are, our general, like our
1: generalities. I I think that's, I think there's a lot to that. I think I would put that as a sub Mm -hmm. theme or maybe an analog theme to one of my, Mm -hmm. one of the rivers flow, one of the tributaries to my river of irrelevance (laughs) that John Grisham experienced, even as he can swim around in it because it's made of money for him. So I think related to that point and maybe goes alongside of it is September 11th, Mm. 2001. Mm -hmm. This sort of purely domestic thriller was both, it's all of a sudden seems claustrophobic, Mm. I think in a weird way where it's like the threat is, the the threat of Victor Matisse and the oil driller seems out of scale with, let's just put it on there, this xenophobic portrayal of Muslim Americans that we've caught ever since. And we'll throw Bourne and we'll throw Bond and some of the people that have to wrestle with this externality right because you look at something like zero dark 30 or something else like that right i think so that's part of it is this just sort of insular there's no the heroes here don't shoot guns like that's related to your point yeah. right denzel and julie roberts aren't whipping around guns or just not and there is a way like american sniper is maybe the analog yeah. that you're kind of thinking about yeah. like that's the book that's the movie these folks want to see as well. so that's one second one is the, the commodification of legal stories in the form of the rise of Law and & Order and NCIS and its tributaries. Yeah. Law & Order starts in 1990. So by the time Law & Order's kicking three years later, there's a lot of shows with cops and lawyers. Mm-hmm. right? There's just, there's just a whole bunch of them. And then the third thing um, that I've got cooking here is Aaron Sorkin, mm-hmm. which is A Few Good Men is around the same time. And there's lawyers there. And Sorkin writes Lawyers, Trial of Chicago 7, virtually every character in the West Wing yeah. is a lawyer. <laughs> and... John Grisham cannot do what Aaron Sorkin does. Mm-hmm. And so I think that those properties peel off the liberal elite dummies like you and yeah. I from the law stories. And then the American snipers peel off the red staters, right? The law, nor- like the real law and order people that want to see institutions and laws and mm-hmm. power upheld. So J- Grisham, he kind of occupies as this weird middle space. He-, he served in the Mississippi House of Representatives as a Democrat, mm-hmm. like clearly his p- politics in the Pelican Brief are more closer to yours than mine, yeah. though they are an early 90s right. kind of <laughs> yeah. politics, which we can talk about too. It has problems there. And so this kind of like democratic institutionalist worldview, I just don't think there's that much room for um. it, weirdly, in the, in the popular situation. I think the other thing too is the idea of the conspiracy, p- conspiracy is something people care about, like something can use you election. Here, here's my, Donald Trump is probably going to be the Republican non- non- nominee mm-hmm. if he wants to be. And his supporters stormed the White House. So this idea that you have to not run for your election because one of your supporters is a bad guy, which is the Pelican Breeze <laughs> thesis, is so irrelevant I've, now to be almost laughable, Amanda. I
0: one of my top notes about it was like, the after January 6th, the assassination of two Supreme Court justices just kind of doesn't seem like that far outside of the realm of possibility and also doesn't seem like a thing maybe a third of the country would be sad about depending on which who the justices were so in in my thinking of like would this book get written again today no and that's one of the reasons is that like this is reality actually so (laughs) (laughs) we don't need it because we're in it
1: (laughs) because i do remember the idea of of assassinating two supreme court justices seemed shocking at the time uh, you know even even up until like the last four or five years out completely outside until they tried to kill mike pence
0: and nancy pelosi in and their until chairs Until they
1: said let's hang the vice president right. and then it you was know like, and well, like that's just we're gonna sweep that under i guess the rug. that's where we are now <laughs> so i think that political <laughs> valence there is, is super fascinating as well
0: this episode is brought to you by snapple Welcome to the Snapple Mmm Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you.
1: I mean, before we get to the Pelican Brief, I guess this is the... backstory of Grisham a little bit that's interesting Mm -hmm. I guess and maybe Mm -hmm. one of the reasons people are tuning in is to get the context around these adaptations like Time to Kill 1989 his first book Um, Grisham a lawyer himself a political person himself who wanted to write books wrote a Time to Kill shopped it around spent four years writing got picked up 5,000 print run giant hit The Firm and Pelican Brief follow hard upon For a while there, he had the best-selling book in America for like five years Mm. running to beat only by a little book called The Da Vinci Code. Mm. Um, So an enormous, enormous book. I read, I think I read the first six. I think, I I don't have the list in front of me, but up through The Runaway Jury or The Chamber. And those are all the ones that have movies of them. I think I've read the the books of and have forgotten them completely. It's been 25 years uh, since I read them. And I guess, what is it? Why were these hits as hard to say? I I postulated to you that he invented the legal thriller Uh after doing some research. I am a lying, (laughs) ignorant idiot. That is not true at all. You go back to Wilkie Collins. I mean, really before Scott Scott Turow with Presumed Innocent in 1987 initiates the modern legal thriller, I guess there's courtroom dramas and cop shows and noir. But what does Grisham bring to the table? And I think the the idea of the conspiracy, Uh right? But also the idea of these shady, soft power, business, corporate, legal entities, and really exposing how much room there was for ni- manipulation mm. in a systemic way. I think it's, that's new. That, Is that Does that feel right
0: to I you? I think it's the um,
1: more realistic
0: version of what Michael Crichton was doing at the same time in that way. Ah. Like there's that big corporate shadiness, corporate espionage, corporate conspiracies. Right. Um, the way that money ties into political campaigns was a, a big thing in the 90s that we don't talk about mm-hmm. so much anymore even though we should um after citizens united so yeah i i just made that connection to creighton in my brain but uh it does seem to be like of the moment a topic of the moment
1: and turning from the post watergate sort of government conspiracy mm-hmm. genre and we should talk about because alan j bakula directed all the president's <laughs> men he directed parallax view he he was a producer on um to kill a mockingbird so this sort of intersection of the law and Uh, politics and the government is right up his alley. But I think coming out of the eighties, which the eighties did not have an appetite for seeing big business as the bad Mm -hmm. guy and the turning to big business as the bad guy. I mean, in a way it's almost a trope. Like you need to find a villain in modern movies. that's just not like a corporate entity, Mm -hmm. right? That's not like a, that's not like a Cayman Islands shell company. And that's still kind of a problem is, is who the bad guys are. Um, And it's, I think this, that's inheritance of something Grisham identified Inexposed and, and then capitalized on by making them into thrillers where people are running through parking garages escaping <laughs> car bombs um, to be saved by dobermans. <laughs> yeah, and he does he does have felicity with the ways that power work. Right, you know this appeals court mm-hmm. and this amount of money and this statute and this law is very detailed, and you can find him almost having the most fun when he's talking about like. The Byzantine nature of the shell corporations <laughs> that Victor Matisse, the bad guy has put in, like yeah. that, feels like where he's having fun yeah. almost to me is explaining all that stuff. But I think that was a real that we were ready to hear about where the cracks in the system were differently and anew that we haven't heard about quite those way before. So yeah. I think that maybe, and then it's, it they are turn pages, baby these are page turners and that's always gonna that's always something that i was shocked Uh, at how i had never
0: read grisham before i've only seen you know the floppity jillion movies yeah but i was shocked at how i was like in it (laughs) i was engrossed i was compelled like he got me
1: from the beginning yep and it's it's a really good point i think that's And it's unfair, unreasonable. You take that for granted for these people that can do this, Mm -hmm. you know, the Pattersons of the world and that's their stock and trade is getting people to turn pages. But in a lot of ways, that's what a lot of people look for sometimes is turning the pages. And that's a marketable, clearly valuable skill. Now, is it that interesting from a non, just trying to like pass time waiting at your gate to get to Newark? I don't know, but it works, Mm -hmm. man. And it makes money and it certainly did. Now, on the other hand, once you pump out seven or eight of these, where do you go? Right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure where else, how many else you can you can do. So I think that's another reason that faded away is like you kind of saw the firm and the runaway jury and the chamber and the client and all that stuff. It's like, okay, I get it. The law is crappy and the governments are also bad and people are so cynical. In, uh, every, <laughs> so so, Such so a cynical. cynical. And that's look. really baked in. From the pie. So let's talk about this. Mm. Let's talk. That was your big note. Yeah. Or that's the note you te- that was text-worthy to me is how cynical the so book is. Say cynical.
0: more about that. Uh, I mean, every character except for Darby and a little bit of Gray, um, are who of course are the heroes, um, is awful. Is like a caricature of themselves. There's the professor having an affair, uh, serial affairs with younger students. There's awful yeah. slimy Republicans. There's awful slimy lawyers just everybody is like the corporate nobody's nice (laughs) not even the nice or not nice but like nobody has good intentions right like nobody has good intentions even if they're fumbling even the president who is is a reagan-esque figure and is like not necessarily he's not a criminal he's like kind of a puppet he's a little bit silly he's kind of fumbling he doesn't have overtly good intentions either he's just there like to be a puppet for the, the bad people around him and it just assumes the worst intentions of every single character except the two heroes. And, you know, that yep. like very black and white, completely lacking in nuance sort of characterization is not a thing modern readers want anymore, I don't think. It's certainly not what I
1: I don't think. Want. That's a great point. It's
0: just like very upsetting. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't like it. And it, there's no hope. There's no... I mean, even at the end, which I, you know, eh, the good guys win, kind of, Um Sort of. Like, that. you don't see Matisse sort coming of. to justice, but, you know, the thing is exposed and the wheels are turning and, and the law is doing what it's supposed to do, which is go after the bad guys. Um, you don't see them get their comeuppance, but you know that that's probably what's going to happen. That's how the book ends. Even though it ends on, like, kind of a hopeful note, there's no real hope. Like, they still killed two Supreme Court justices and were allowed to do it. And it just feels very bleak.
1: It is very bleak. And, and the book is certainly bleaker than the yes. movie. I mean, the president's a much worse person in yes. the book especially if you have a certain political persuasion yeah. there is one moment where he's like can I just find a couple of white people yes. to put on the court where are all yes. the whi- like I just want white, white dudes. Men. find me white dudes it's like it's and that felt super relevant mm-hmm. and like I wonder how shocking that would have been to read as the a business traveler in 1993 you know kind of going to your earlier point but all the people even that breathe some humanity the actors especially I think one of the one of the pleasures of the movie is like People are doing a lot with not that much and trying to make the stereotypes and tropes into something interesting. So John Hurt is Gavin Verheek. There's something about John Hurt that is just Mm likable. You know, the dad in Home Alone who's sort of out to lunch, but somehow you don't blame him in Home Alone. Like, whatever he does also applies here. In the book, he's a philandering sort of gold digger, Mm -hmm. right, who, you know, is, is a very unattractively amoral if not sleazy person who just wants to thinking about darby running around the beach in a string bikini which is not what you want to read for me um that that's what he wants but in the movie gives him something to do right he cares about his friend callahan who's died he wants to help darby he's kind of a putz Mm -hmm. in terms of naive and what he's caught up in thinks he can go handle it by himself and then venton doyles who's the director of the fbi in the book is very much like a careerist and just trying to survive and the movie you have some warmth for him because he's negotiating the terrain that he's getting. Yeah. Like, he seems like he wants to do the right thing. Callahan, Sam... I think the, the person who elevates the role the most is probably Sam Shepard is Callahan because he plays him as sort of this tragic figure, um, but still very tough to handle. And then the Fletcher Cole as now a sort of stereotypical chief conniving <laughs> careerist, do-anything chief of staff. We've seen that trope a million have times Have you before. seen
0: Scandal, the great... The greatest show ever made.
1: <laughs> no, I know this dude is in it, right? What's his name? Tony Goldwyn
0: the, the, the is the or... actor. He's yes. the horror bold chief of staff in the movie The Pelican Brief. He is also the slimy Republican president in every season of Scandal <laughs> until his uh, wife okay. takes over. Um, but like, like as soon as he got on the screen, you know, I, I haven't seen this movie since I watched Scandal. But I was like, all oh, right, it's that guy. What is about? What is it about his face that makes him so castable as like an awful? Republican? What is it?
1: (laughs) I don't know, because he seems like the the guy at the frat that he's not the best looking or the athlete, but he's the smartest. Yes. And so this is what he does, right? Like this is his he's he's the short he's the short dude at the frat who gets good grades, and this is what happens. I like this story that Fletcher Cole, his character in Scandal, is Fletcher Cole's ultimate goal (laughs) is to sort of usurp the president and become the president himself. And then Robert Kulp, as the president, plays him as you say. Buffoon is, is too strong but not wrong. He's kind of an amiable, self interested puff Yeah, he's of nothing. A
0: man. He's just a nothing burger. He's
1: kinda nothing. You know, he's more interested in teaching his dog to roll over than doing mm-hmm. really anything.
0: Mm-hmm. It reminded me uh, of, of like the me. way that Bush Junior was marketed, Bush the Younger. Like I think that's
1: prescient. Yeah, that's a really nice good point. Yeah, really I can
0: point. throw a football, I'm not super smart, and somehow Have that's the draw. With? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, have a beer with. Wasn't that the the Bushism um, to to some degree? So the book, I mean, I think that largely the plot is the same, I should Mm -hmm. say. In terms of the actual plot, it's largely the same. Um, Darby Darby in the book, I mean, I think we'll get this when we talk about how Julia Roberts was directed or chose to play this particular role. Darby is a stereotype, a trope Mm -hmm. of the leggy, good-looking, brilliant student who can do it all and also doesn't get that much to do i had a lot of problems time. with
0: darby in the book a lot just, yeah speak on she's it. the she i don't know anything about john grisham as a person but the way she's written where she is just like sexually available to whatever older man is in the room and likes her you know like just feels yep. like i'm reading john grisham's weird private thoughts <laughs> or like what he w- wants you know it just is gross it's like a sexual mary sue like she has that's
1: a great Very point. little agency. That's a great, that's a great short yeah, year. she has mm-hmm. very
0: little agency. Which, oh, I mean, maybe that's overstating because she's, she's in this book trying to save her life and trying to, you know, like make justice happen and all of that. But when it comes to interacting with the older men around her, it's not there's she's just there like she becomes this empty vessel for their thoughts about her legs and i hated it which i feel like for the book is surprisingly in my opinion progressive for the time and the genre that it's in about about race like the the way that he writes the janitor i think is fascinating
1: fascinating Um,
0: and politics in general like the whole thing is except for this except for there's no there are no women in it except for the 23 year old that every old guy wants to bang and i cannot deal with it (laughs)
1: And then the widow, right? oh, widows, yeah, and the widow. Yeah. Those are the mm-hmm. other women that get that get put in. I think that's a good point. It's both more and less progressive than you would be expect. walking yeah. into the book mm-hmm. at this point, like the male gay stuff is all over the place and completely un self conscious mm-hmm. or aware Unexamaged. or interested in interrogating. Mm-hmm. But the idea of like w- you know the Supreme Court and rights and give the Indians everything what you want. Mm-hmm. Now the nomenclature is wrong, mm-hmm. but a very progressive idea of like. Whatever, whatever the native folks are suing about, give them. That's what, yeah. you know, Rosenberg's one of the lines there. And, like, what is it? The, the uh, government over business, the individual over government, mm-hmm. um, the environment over and everything. The environment over everything. Is Rosenberg's reason to turn. And I think you can kind of see some Grisham in yeah. there. Um, but on the other hand, he's like, and if a leggy paralegal comes in, I'm going to hit yeah. on it. Like, that's the other, the other subtext or super Ugh. text here. Doesn't age very well. Greg Grantham. I hadn't read this book in 25 years. I, don't, I didn't have any mental model of it, except that I thought the plot was pretty much the same. There wasn't a big surprise. The big surprise to me is how there was no surprise. Mm. How Greg Grantham, the main male character here, is super uninteresting. Yeah. Not much of her personality. Um, I guess an okay reporter. It's not clear to me that he's a great reporter. You know, I guess figuring out Garcia and hiring a stooge to watch a phone booth for 15 bucks an hour, I, you know, I don't know that much about journalism, but it doesn't seem particularly brilliant to me. So that everything that Denzel does is Denzel magic mm-hmm. for, with Grey when it, it turns into that that particular way. I guess the the biggest plot change, which we're really going to need to talk about when we talk about the adaptation of the movie, is Darby and Denzel, or Darby and Grey have a sexual relationship mm-hmm. in the book. You know, a romantic relationship. And in the movie, they don't.
0: Oh, thank God. Um,
1: <laughs> th- thank God. And also, it's more interesting that yes. way. And also, um, I don't know if you did how much research you did about apparently this was Denzel's decision.
0: Oh, I did not know, I did not know that.
1: imprint on the the screenplay which we can get into, but I think that adds a layer of sophistication mm-hmm. that Grisham doesn't deserve or it doesn't doesn't warrant, right? This idea that they have a professional relationship rather than, you know, everyone is passing on her brief because of her legs mm-hmm. rather than she's actually got something here. Um, which is the truth, because she does figure it out. I mean, not for nothing, she figures it out, and is kind of learning as she goes in the book, especially, like, how to avoid the CIA. G- good job, except she's not avoiding CA CIA because they're watching her all the time. Yeah. Anyway, it's a little confusing. But she does a good job, and even still, that's uh, de-emphasized somehow. It's like, she's a brilliant young woman who's very capable and res- resourceful, and everyone's thinking about bikinis, yeah. man. Uh, so, anyway... I'm not sure. What else? What else about the book? Um, those are those are my big highlights, I guess, uh, to take
0: away. I think that that was about it. the janitor. I do think I, I want to like? hang a lantern on the you
1: want to talk about I... that now or as the adaptation your, your choice
0: oh well it's different in the adaptation like he doesn't get as much air time yes. uh, in the book the janitor okay
1: let's talk about yeah i think that's interesting because his, his his son also isn't in the movie right, right. his son is the go between between gray and sarge which is the janitor yeah, yeah what do you want to say so
0: sarge that? is the janitor in the white house who cleans the west wing and kind of pretends to be blind a little bit so that he can mm-hmm. have access to 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 like conversations and listen and and then pass on information to grant them the reporter through his son Cleve, who is a black cop in dc which i also think was very interesting but sarge is very aware of how he's perceived by all the powerful white yeah. men around him and he uses it to entertain himself and i think that the fact that that's like really not emphasized in the in the movie is such a shame because it was so again like weirdly progressive coming from john grisham who was just this like white lawyer politician guy from the south from the from the south is like especially interesting i guess um but i loved it i would read an entire book about sarge's life like please write that oh
1: that's a great that's a great ongoing bit for us to do it's like okay if you could have a uh the john grisham eu where do you want a mini series about i think Sar- that's sergeant Cleve is right? fascinating.
0: like he has no respect for the the people he's spying on essentially he seems to have a lot of respect for the institutions he's trying to preserve but he's mostly there for the lulls like he's doing he's passing on this information he's not getting he's a trick he's not getting paid right he's He's like a Loki like he's not getting paid he has no financial investment he just it's hilarious that he takes advantage of these idiots bias around him for his own like funniness I just love that
1: yeah, he's he's trolling yes. them like using Deboisian double consciousness, <laughs> right? Which is amazing to see it work. And I do think we haven't talked about this the idea of like the Grishon, the Grishamian, Grishonian, <laughs> the, the Grishamic. I don't know how to make it into a um, adjective. Milou is like the mid south, yes. like New Orleans up through Memphis, Louisville, over to D.C. Mm-hmm. You know, with the little stops everywhere around. And so as a dem- as a white elite Democrat
0: in the '90s, this idea
1: of like. <laughs> In the 90s, he is straddling the racial line in ways that other people Mm -hmm. aren't in in pop culture. And I think he... Now, again, I'm sure if this is written by a black person, it's completely different. But Grisham does have these moments of, like, he talks about race. Mm -hmm. He includes people of color. He gives them things to do, though they're not the stars. But he does have some sense of how these things can work in a more sophisticated way, which is um, pretty interesting. I don't have anything... It sold a billion copies... Um, I don't think there's much else to say about the book. Let's do another break and we'll get into the, the movie proper. I guess my... There's, there's two big changes. I, I already said the... I, I've said them both, but they are the backpedaling removal of an explicit or really even implicit romantic relationship or desire between Darby and Grey mm-hmm. in the movie. And then, of course, um, race bending mm-hmm. Grey into the black character. Michelle and I were having a long... Um, conversation this morning about how denzel being gray matters and doesn't matter um in terms of the actual plot of the movie it doesn't matter no there's one line that
0: lithgow drops about how if i take you off this case you're going to sue me for discrimination and that's really the only time it's acknowledged
1: on the other hand it's not a race blind the the movie does take into account that denzel is black Mm -hmm. i think is interesting way that line is one Mm -hmm. Another one is that, and these are small, and I think it's 93, it's important to remember that the time is what the time was, that he's wearing a Howard Mm t-shirt. At one point, he didn't go to Harvard. He's not one of these, you know, he's a a black reporter. He is not a Harvard lobbyist think tanker, right? He's on the outside in that regard. And I think importantly, his relationship to Sarge is made more interesting because he's black, right? In the book, we get an explanation that Sarge, why is he feeding him the stuff like you say for the lulls? In the, in the movie, we don't get that, but we almost don't need it because you see them together buying coffee Mm -hmm. and Sarge is doing it to help a brother out. It looks like, like he's a reporter, he's a black reporter and he wants to give him some stuff and he trusts him and he wants to do well by the country and gray and the truth. So it's more, it seems even those small scenes, much more altruistic. Mm -hmm. And then another scene when, um, gray and Darby are at Georgetown law school trying to get class records and track down interns so they can, um, ID Garcia Mm -hmm the black the student that overhears Gray and tells him where Edward Linney is, is black. Mm. And in that moment, there's a moment where he, it feels like the student is doing it because he wants to help Gray mm. out. Because you know, he's a law student at Georgetown. Yeah. He knows who Gray Grantham is. He just does know who that is. And so he's interested in making a connection and helping him out. There's a similar scene sort of in Philadelphia, which is an interesting analog to this, talking about my two dads and the parting oh, of the yeah. ways between Denzel and Tom Hanks, where Denzel is in a bodega, and a law student comes up and says, everything you're doing is so fascinating and thank you so much for helping the cause. And Denzel's character at that moment thinks it's because he's black, but it's because he's gay. And Denzel, the character is a very complicated, let's say, mm. charitably reaction. But anyway, these little social things matter in the movie. And I think it's just a fascinating, fascinating role for Denzel to take. He's my favorite thing in it. Um, and I, I really... I don't think if this is anybody else, I ever watched this movie twice. That's, that's my sort of oh. takeaway after watching it again. Anything else about Denzel, um, Amanda? You there want was to another explain, scene interesting there? that
0: I'm remembering now where he's trying to tail someone. I don't remember who he's chasing. Oh, and he tries to get in yeah. the taxi, but he's a black man wearing a hoodie and the taxi won't let him that's in the car. Right.
1: Won't let him in the car. I don't that's think a really, that's...
0: after Good. You know, Good. the last couple of years... And like specific conversations about hoodies and black men in public. I don't know that I would have caught that as like a
1: a notable moment. Like, I don't think so either. And I wonder, is that Alan or is that Denzel? I wonder if Denzel's like, you know what actually would happen right there. He wouldn't wouldn't get in
0: the cab. Like the cab would drive off. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The cab would drive off. That's a fact, but it kind of goes in the same category of all these little, they don't actually affect the outcome that Mm -hmm. much, but they are a recognition that it matters that he's black. Mm -hmm. You know, it actually does have some import. Denzel at the, is is not quite at the peak of his powers. He's coming off Malcolm X, which is, launches him into superstardom. Um, he has several interesting kind of roles, but you're right. This, is at the, this in Philadelphia brings him sort of the end of his, might he be the Tom Hanks, mm-hmm. Paul Newman kind of a character, and more towards him to the, he's got a little more Bruce Willis yeah. in than Tom <laughs> Hanks. That's true. Um, <laughs> towards the end of his the, the, the latter career. Let's talk about Julia Roberts. Oh
0: man, I <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> I have a lot. I don't. Uh, it's just hard to articulate. She's given nothing, me, right? Like Derby. Yeah. Is nothing. Let me position
1: her career, okay, then I'm going to throw it over to you, because where she is in this particular moment, I think is interesting. She's coming off at, after Pretty Woman. She is the biggest female star in mm-hmm. the world. I don't, or the female movie star in the world. I think what's weird to me about Julia Roberts is she's been in a lot fewer big hit movies than you think um and really between this and 1999's Notting hill it's a kind of a tough run for julia roberts um interesting a return to form is in a movie that's not unrelated to this which is aaron Brockovich, in which he also plays a sort of paralegal person who's fighting big business um through I mean, that one is more overtly using sexual powers, and I think in a way that's more empowering than male gazy, but it's still kind of fruits of the same tree. I think this movie doesn't know what to do with Darby, Mm -hmm. and I don't think Julia Roberts does, and I find her winning always on screen, Um, but this is... She's neither the shrinking violet nor the... I'm trying to think of I'm trying to think of an analog in '93 that she could have been, but a little more like feisty, I guess, is maybe what I was looking for from Darby Shaw and mm. Julia Roberts. Who I think she has two. Julia Roberts seems to do two things particularly well, maybe better than anyone I've ever seen on screen. One is the one is to play herself or a version of herself in Ocean's Eleven yeah. or Notting Hill, which he's very self aware about, like the thousand watt smile mm. and the Julia Roberts baggage. And the other one is sort of the girly, girly, not girly is not the wrong word, but a girl-next-door approachability in Mystic Pizza or Runaway Bride or um, Steel Magnolias, Mm -hmm. right? Where she is the center of the room she's in, but she's not Julia Roberts or playing a shadow of Julia Roberts to some degree. And this isn't either of those things. And I'm not sure what kind of direction. like, did Alan just say, hey, so when in doubt, whisper, Julia. When in doubt in this movie, just whisper. So I'm going to throw – that's why I'm positioning her here. She's coming – After this movie, it's a dry spell, and then she comes back. And I I think it threw her off this kind of big budget. Um, She didn't do an action movie. She doesn't do an Angelina Jolie turn or anything like that. She's never really done a, I don't know, Tomb Raider, Mm. Laura Croft, Salt, one of those. And I wonder, it's because she looked at this like, boy, that was a tough hang (laughs) for me in that movie.
0: The whispering thing, I spent so much time after I watched this movie this weekend being like, why is everyone talking so quietly <laughs> like nobody yes. yells nobody yells until the lawyer the, the white and whatever the, the bad guy
1: Velsamo, uh, yeah Belsamo. until he
0: yells yeah, and calls first. grantham a son of a bitch nobody yells like everybody is just very chill and it's because
1: she screams and she cries yeah. but that's only when a car but bomb like there's
0: on. no nobody speaks really quickly no and i couldn't figure out if it was denzel doing it or if it was julia roberts doing it because especially when they're together they they and I think it's Julia because, like you said, she doesn't know what to do with her hand eyes. So she's just like
1: mm-hmm.
0: speaking in a very... I think she's trying to pull off traumatized. And so she, all she has is monotone. Mm-hmm. And then Gray is afraid of spooking her. And so he just matches her tone. And yes. so anytime I mean, they're example. together... That's a great observation. Yeah, anytime they're together, it's just this very quiet kind of thing way of talking and it, it's so noticeable and distracting and strange especially from her because she has such a big she's got a big face you know big personality big gestures yeah. like big actress but here she's so level like it's what like no effect like level except in the moments after the explosion from then on it's just one note um, and Gray really meets her there but I just mm. it's so confusing I think she did the best with what she had and if you had to typecast a leggy redhead there you go. Like, there's your in a box. Julie Roberts. Merry Christmas.
1: I don't. I don't think she's bad, and I think it. Like Michelle said she's not a good part, or it's the part as written is not that interesting. It could be a lot more interesting because clearly we can talk about Callahan and some other things in a minute, but I think the movie itself admits that her her natural charisma is a bit of a problem mm. because the last you know where the last shot of the film is it's Julie Roberts smiling quietly to herself about beach. something Gray says. Yeah. And you've got you've gotta be careful with Julia Roberts' smile. It takes you, it's a completely different movie when she flashes those things. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a weapon. Like if she smiles in the middle of the Marriott scene, we're like it's not serious anymore. Yeah. It's like it's Julia Roberts, everything's gonna be fine. So it's like there's some part of it that she has to kind of like rein in her charisma like mm-hmm. ability, everything's fine, A plot armor for black you know, to use a trope. So it's 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 very tough. And I think if she was Of course she's gonna be traumatized, that's fine. But if she was more embattled than traumatized Mm -hmm. if she was more resolved than rattled every time there's this one scene where she's there and it's one of our favorite scenes is when she's narrated you're listening to gray listen to the tape of her telling him this story and she's whispering there and i kind of like that scene for a lot of metatextual reasons about that's an interesting filmic moment but she sounds like she's coming out of a coma (laughs) like i just don't there's, now, if she was more resolved, I think it would it would play better. And I think some of the moments she gets later are actually fairly good because she is clearly resourceful. You believe Julia Roberts is being smart and tricky in this movie, which I don't know that you necessarily do before this movie. Think of her as a thinker, mm-hmm. right? When you see the roles that she generally gets. But I believed her as figuring this stuff out and a quick on her feet liar, mm-hmm. you know, conniving sort of person in her own right. But they they just can't get away from that she's a scared bird. Yeah. And I don't think that's a good use of Julia Roberts. I, I don't think it's a good use of a female character like this at all. But I don't think it's a good use of Julia Roberts because this movie, to me, the heart of it is, I mean, this is weird to say, it gets going about an hour and a half in yeah. when Julia and Denzel are together figuring crap out. That's the best part of this movie. Yeah. And it just takes too long to get there. And it could have been even better in, in watching it now if she had a little more, a little more repartee sparriness with Denzel. Um, and I don't want the romance stuff. I don't want that. Um, but I do want her to be like, I've survived without you, man. And I want to figure this out and avenge my dude and get these bastards. Cause the other thing that she's motivated mostly by surviving, Mm -hmm. which is totally reasonable, but usually we want from a hero is they're doing something for a good reason. And it takes her a long time to get to, I want to figure this out and, and not save my skin.
0: Yeah. And I don't think her age, I understand why she's the age, you know, she's a law school student. She's in her early 20s. Right. fine. She's 24 um, or 23. But I cannot imagine a 23 or 24 year old who wasn't, doesn't have like military experience, not immediately taking, a, you know, anyone up on their offers for government <laughs> protection. Right. How many FBI agents right. call her and are like, could you please just just come in? Like, we will protect you. And she just refuses and the I, it's, all, it's so unbelievable to me. I could not get over it. And especially, and when she tries to do, like, steely, like, no, I'm going to do it on my... It's just so unbelievable. Come on. You're 23. You don't know
1: what you're doing. One of the things that struck... I mean, of its time and place, one of the things that struck me is, like, when she wants to disappear... I guess this is more in the book. You don't really get this in the movie. But when she wants to, like, lose a tail, mm-hmm. she goes to the airport and gets on a plane. Yeah. And that's such a pre-patriarch move. Yeah because right now you go to the airport the TSA knows where you are and that immediately like the government would know immediately where mm-hmm. you are but this idea that you could escape by going onto a plane and all you have to do is not use your credit card i found fascinating as a what a different world it was in 93 just moving around the country un, unmarked mm-hmm. unnoticed um for better or worse and whatever but that was definitely uh a piece of it as well my, my least favorite part of the movie is the the Callahan trope, the the professor mm-hmm. sleeping with the student. Those of you who listen to me on other shows know that's maybe my single least favorite trope for all kinds of reasons. I think it doesn't do anyone a disservice here. M- Michelle and I were talking about this before. So one of the one of the things the story, both in book and film, have to figure out is how does this no name law student's brief end up on the on Venton Doyle's desk, mm-hmm. right? How how literally how does this happen? And basically you need to get to Verheek, right? That's um, the, the, one of the lawyers that has, you know, the ear of the FBI director and the way that they do it is say that one of his old friends who happens to be in the book, especially seems a very mediocre teacher at Tulane or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, you know, they meet for a drink because their shared buddy Rosenberg is dead. And Sam passes, or um, Callahan passes along to Verheek because he's sleeping with this girl. And you want to see how her mind works. Isn't this weird? Uh Pretty little girl with this, this interesting idea. It's just, Terrible! It's such a bad taste in your mouth. And I said, again, I think I understand why you need to do this. You need to get someone who's outside to have a different way of thinking, and then figure out a way for it to plausibly get to director's desk. I think you solve this problem pretty easily. You make Sam Shepard a woman, and this is a mentor mentee relationship. Mm -hmm. Julie Roberts is the star pupil of some hotshot lawyer who has a friend in the FBI and says, "You know, Gavin, I know you get a lot of things, but I read this thing by the student, and I can't shake it. Mm -hmm. I need to pass it on." You're, you're done with all that stuff. And then she blows up in a car bomb. And, like, it's the same thing, but you don't have this sort of specter of sleeves yeah. that is so unnecessary. And I like Sam Shepard. And I think he does as much as you could by making him sort of like this broken man who is, you know, doesn't seem to be preying on, on students like he kind of does seem to be in the mm. book. Um, I don't know. I, m- maybe it doesn't matter, but that's the one I was like, if I had to make a screenwriting change, I think that's my single biggest change. I mean, uh, do you have well, the whole anything along those kind lines? Of
0: premise. Is not great. Like the idea that law enforcement would not immediately start looking at p- p- cases that were on their way to the Supreme Court
1: for suspects. Yeah. Like that whole idea
0: is laughable.
1: Of course, they would immediately start looking at cases. They try to deal with that in the book by saying there are so many, yeah. but I have no sense if that's a believable excuse. I'm sure there are. That, that she- yeah, I don't but know.
0: if you've killed two Supreme Court justices, the whole arm of like every law enforcement arm that could possibly right. be involved would be, and like. Where else would you start looking? It's just so goofy. Like the whole premise is goofy. That is
1: that is fairly goofy. Um, that is fairly
0: goofy. I think that so my favorite part of the movie is none of none of the people. It's the fact that you don't get the brief until almost the end. Like you don't actually yes. get and it's it's different yes. in the in the book. In the book you kind of know what's going on or like what her theory is. Earlier, but Mm -hmm. in the movie, she doesn't read it until she mumble cores the whole thing. (laughs) Like (laughs) when when, with forty five minutes left, you still have no idea what the motive is or who the actual bad guy is until you're almost done. And I think that's fascinating and and completely compelling. Like I was, I knew who the bad guy is because I'd read the book, but I was still here for it. Like I'm still along for this ride. How are they going to reveal? this bad guy and it makes the president and his chief of staff seem way more ominous than they are because you don't know what their connection is until the yeah, end you just know there is that's one that's a
1: really good point um yeah there's so the, what, yeah what's the what's the question of the mm-hmm. movie it's really not so much who did mm-hmm. it but how much the white house is implicated yeah. right that's kind and whether or not you know darby's gonna get blown up <laughs> right. he's gonna figure it out but i think we know just because of the kinds of movie and stars we're dealing with that that's gonna happen but like is the last, is Fletcher Cole at one point turns a president and says, you know, Victor told us, yeah, <laughs> you know, you know, Victor said that, but like it does. And we, I, that, I had a similar thing, but it was less about the brief itself than about Batiste who we don't never see. Yeah. You never see the sentence villain. from no. he never, he's like, there's one photo I think that's talked about, but you know what? It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Cause we all know the bad guy. It doesn't, the specific doesn't matter because the real bad guy is this, the influence of money and politics mm-hmm. and justice, right? That's the bad guy. And you could give it a, it's the, it's the villain with a thousand faces to paraphrase uh, Joseph Campbell to some degree. And even the brief, the contents of the brief itself also don't really matter to some degree. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons it doesn't comes like, if it's true, we all kind of have a sense of like, it's sleazy corporate stuff, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it just is. And it's like, not that interesting. So don't bother wasting any, any time on it. Can I tell you a weird sort of like, um, contingent part of one of the things about my viewing experience of this movie has been over the years. So after when we went into the DVD universe out of the cable universe, especially when Michelle and I were, you know, kind of broke in New York and we didn't have cable. We had a huge DVD collection. We asked them for gifts. We gave them each other to build up our our repertoire. And one of the ones we had was a Pelican brief, of course. But because the movie was so long and I guess, I don't know, Warner brothers or whatever cheaped out on the technology. It was two discs. So you had to flip it. You had to switch discs in the middle. And the moment you had to flip the disc is when Gray starts listening to her narrate, which is right in the middle of my favorite part. So I would usually put in the second disc. So I hadn't seen the beginning of this movie in a billion years, but I think it does. It's just one of those. And then so we bought it later. It's like, okay, finally we've got enough money. I'm going to buy the Blu-ray. Well, there's no Blu-rays. Okay, I'll buy a new DVD because surely. Um, no, Bob Blu-ray, also on two discs. Uh, and there we go. So I, I bought this on Apple. I've got to watch as one um, unseen thing. But like that middle, that middle, I think that withholding both of Denzel and Darby's relationship, the brief and Matisse, makes it somewhat interesting mm-hmm. um, that you don't get it all from the beginning. Because we get, in the movie, Gray behind Rosenberg in the first shot, because apparently he's just done an interview with Rosenberg, which is a complete creation yeah. for the movie. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you don't get Gray till well end you don't get Denzel, you wouldn't have Denzel on screen um, for, oh, for much yeah. later. I think the mumblecore stuff <laughs> is Pakula said that worked in all the president's men. And I'm just going to do this because my theory of the case here is this is a, this is the fugitive meets all the president's men. That's oh, what the Pelican yeah. brief really is. You get woman on the run, woman and man on the run with the government lawyer investigative stuff. And I, I'm I'm a stooge for newspaper movies. Yeah. I love them all. I love anything where you have a reporter doing reporter trade craft to get answers. I I I eat it all up. I've said before, if I had to do it all over again or live a parallel life, I'd like to be a reporter of some kind mm-hmm. and, and do all this kind of stuff. Even though I don't have the gumption or the, I have my Midwestern temerity wouldn't allow me to sort of cold call people and lie to them. But I do like this. But to me, it's Denzel and Julia, especially after. Um, it's revealed that they go try to figure out who Garcia is and they get everything else. That that's my favorite part of the movie. I think they have really good chemistry. Darby gets to do a little bit more. Denzel, you don't get this very often and you get it more now, but a black guy figuring things out Mm -hmm. was not something you saw. And he's really, he reads as smart. He reads as street smart and book smart. And I just love Denzel's somehow Denzel's mumbling makes more sense to me as I think you hit the nail on the head, which is he's tone matching. Mm -hmm and he's not trying to sell he's not trying to scare garcia he's not trying to s- scare darby he's not trying to scare any of the, the students like he's just trying to like get, get along but i really enjoyed him watching him think watching him work um especially with Julie on the screen so that's what i'd mm. say there are two other favorite bits from the movie amanda or any of what, what else sticks out to you is worth talking john about? lithgow <laughs> John Lithgow. What a breath of fresh air he was, right? Talk and about And he's that.
0: such a perfect, like, he is an archetypal, cranky newspaper editor. Yes. Like, just yes. nails it. <laughs> nails it. And his, he's just so, like, tired and annoyed. And it's just a position. Yes, just wants to move that. on. And he, you know, he, he eats crow in the end when Denzel turns out to be right. Well, he eats crow really when Denzel's car gets blown up and he's, like, afraid that he's yeah. killed him. Um,
1: bird girl she's yeah
0: (laughs) but he's just perfect he's so so good um and just exactly what i imagine all newspaper editors to be and i know that's wildly incorrect yeah
1: bald like balding gray shock of weird gray haircut he never mentions Um, circulation
0: numbers he never mentions newspaper sales he's like only in it for the story and just perfect yes loved it um i need to talk about Stanley Tucci.
1: As the assassin. I, I didn't know how we were going to handle <laughs> this. I'm not sure what to say about this.
0: I had no recollection. I've seen this movie so oh. many times. I had no recollection that this was Stanley Tucci. And he got on the screen on Sunday afternoon when I watched it. And my I came off the I left my body. <laughs> I came off the sofa. <laughs> Stanley Tucci? No. Absolutely not.
1: America's concierge. Right. America's her d'. Murder and Supreme. He
0: makes pasta and drinks wine and like wear suits nicely yeah. and that is what stanley Tucci does and the like brown washing him as an egyptian terrorist is a no for me
1: i could not that's very 90s that's very lou diamond phillips is every person of color yes you need in the 90s I, I could uh, not handle
0: it true. i could not handle it he's not he's not scary i mean maybe he was scary when i watched it when i was a teenager but now i'm like is this miranda would not approve from the devil wears prada this is not gonna work for me i couldn't i couldn't unbelievable
1: <laughs> yeah it's the Kamel character in the book is also a tough hang yes. on the on the whole i'm not sure what we know and don't know about multi-million dollar international assassins. not much <laughs> i think the, the the tucci thing is super weird in hindsight at the point at the time you didn't know he was no yeah one. he was no one at this time i mean i don't think he's in devil wears prada 13 years later yeah. uh his big role before that i mean i don't even know what you pick him out of Um, frankly, so that is a strange one. I will say that the unnerving Kamala moment for me is when he does John Hurd's voice, right? He listens to the tape and he immediately, and I don't know if that's Tucci. He like why he got cast at this. I think he looks vaguely Mediterranean, I guess is what they were going for. There is a blankness to him. That's disturbing, I think, but that's, that's dime a dozen Mm -hmm. now disturbing, competent assassin who just wants money. Um, that's a really yeah that's a wake up if you haven't seen it it's a it's a really good cast I should say. I think mm-hmm. everyone's in it, it's really including the sleaze balls. um it's a good cast all up and down Grisham is he, really has fun he makes hay with names <laughs> we get Darby Shaw mm-hmm. Gray Grantham Venton Doyle Fletcher Cole mm-hmm. Victor Matisse like he just Matisse. revels mm-hmm. in he revels in names which I'm not sure what that's about but he has a really good time with I guess other star sightings Baby Cynthia Nixon oh, as best friend Alice. Yes.
0: Uh, another moment where I was like, whoa, <laughs> I forgot whoa. you existed
1: in this movie. And also the early 90s were a long time
0: they ago. Were, yeah, um, yeah. She has since run for too. governor, and that's weird.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. And come all the way back around <laughs> to starring in looks like misbegotten Sex in the City Ooh, reboots yeah. or whatever we're, we're doing at this point. Now, let's talk about the romantic stuff mm. between Gray and Julia. So let me get... It doesn't sound like this surfaced to you. I didn't remember this. Michelle remembered it, so I went and looked it up proactively. It's not really clear now exactly because it's Julia Roberts talking later about... It sounds like the decision or whatever that Denzel insisted that they not have a kiss, Mm. right? That they not have a romantic relationship. Before we get into this, at the end... I guess were you surprised in the book to see that Gray and Darby had a romance, like they were they were knocking boots or about to or whatever. Yeah, I was surprised. Where he
0: comes on to you her and she says, "I'm not ready," and it's been literally ten right. days since the love of her life was murdered in front of her, and Very I just could work, not. Right. I, no,
1: I was yeah. surprised. Very bad stuff. In the movie, I've always kind of wondered about like what their relation was there is there a subtext here is this a fried green tomato situation (laughs) where they're actually and i think on the whole i've come to especially if you're reading some of the other stuff like they've been through it together they have affection for each other and that's great you know i mean that's wonderful i think it's cool that it does subvert the expectation if this is tom cruise i guess Mm. well that's a different kettle of fish in 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 a variety of different ways but if this is not denzel who apparently nixed a kiss for reasons of not wanting to alienate his core fan base, which is black women. Apparently he was in a movie called the mighty Quinn and he oh. kissed a white woman and he was in the audience and the black woman in the, in the audience booed. And he's like, Oh, oh. that's fascinating. Oh. And he went for another 15 years before there was some movie in the, in 2013. I don't have the notes in front of me. And he went through this whole, you know, went through a whole string of movies where he did not have romantic relationships on screen with, with women who weren't black. Um, he also, at another point, someone said that maybe he didn't, he thought that white people didn't want to see an interracial. That's case. what I point, assumed. He didn't think, at one point there is something said he just didn't think it was right for the movie. So maybe more along the lines of the wavelength I'm on, mm. like I didn't think about the racial dynamics much at all, other than I kind of just liked that. You know, she didn't have to move from one dude's bed to another mm-hmm. to get through this shit. um, I think it works. I think it's great, even if... even I'm sad that there's a, rela- a a racial element that people have to negotiate for a variety of different reasons. But I think on its own merits, whether or not he's black or not, I prefer it if they're just kind of in the foxhole together and they've got a a comrades-in-arms relationship by the end of wanting to protect each other. And, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm not sure if there's anything interesting in there for you, Amanda. But th- I, I did think that was... It, it sounds like it was a political choice more than a storytelling mm-hmm. choice but it, i think the storytelling choice ultimately was the right one anyway
0: yeah i agree so, and like i did genzel. not know that about genzel not wanting to kiss white women but i totally get it mm-hmm. i had assumed the other way around that the movie like the when it was over i was like oh they just didn't want to deal with the the backlash of having julia roberts kiss a black man like i that probably would have been a mm-hmm. whole thing um And I'm glad to be wrong about that, I guess. But I agree that it is better. It's a better story if they don't... Like, not everything has to be speed, you know, where the way we process this trauma is by dating. No, that's not necessary. She is also, not for nothing, like 15 years younger than him in the movie and book. And stop it. I, I
1: just can't. I think the movie also I, be, I mean, since it's Julie Roberts, you don't have to play up that she's good looking, mm-hmm. but it doesn't have her wear these dresses and stuff that the book yeah. does. Like she did, also it's early nineties fashion, <laughs> right. which is maximalist, <laughs> right? Like Denzel's a very handsome man, but he's wearing this gray suit that looks nine sizes yes, too big for yes. him in today's fashion and, and she's wearing like the Meg Ryan, like I I don't know what the name for these things are, but basically Shoulder to ankle maxi. I don't even know what these things are. <laughs> that No one wears anymore. That Meg Ryan wore. They're like prairie the dresses. 90s. Yeah, yeah. You're not seeing a lot of Julia Roberts, no. right? There's not. There's not a lot, and that's that's fine. But it, it is interesting that for as much as there is sexualization of Darby in the book, she's undercover, literally and figuratively, mm-hmm. um, through, throughout the movie. Uh, let's see. I guess the idea of. I, I'm not sure how you came down on this. Is how both dated and relevant the Supreme Court stuff. Oh, God, yeah. Um, on the whole. Like, they're protesting about abortion and gun mm-hmm. rights on the steps of the Supreme Court building. Rosenberg is actively thinking about trying to live long enough to live to see a Democratic president so he can be put on the bench. Mm-hmm. That like The president and Fletcher Cole thinking about reshaping the court is going to be their legacy. The structural stuff about the Supreme Court was a problem 30 years ago. Still a problem. I don't know if there's anything news at 11, I guess, Amanda. What about the politics of the day? Did anything strike you especially?
0: Um, It struck me mostly as not having changed much. Like the introduction uh, is, is it Rosenberg or whoever he's talking to, which I think it was his clerk um, about Mm -hmm. how everything is so divisive and this president ran such a divisive campaign And everybody out there is like, it's shocking how dangerous it is to be politically active these days. And I was like, wow, I guess nothing has, nothing has changed.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah. Does that make you feel better or worse? I'm not sure. Both? On on the one part, there's nothing new on the sun. On the other hand, we're all getting radiation poisoning, I
0: guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it, it makes me feel kind of better in as much as like the long arc of the universe is towards justice. I'm like maybe things haven't changed, but a lot of things have changed. Like maybe the fact that we're this divided and partisan and up each other's th- down each other's throats. I don't know. It can't get my directions. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it's not super new. Uh, and I know that, you know, being a history nerd, I, there have been periods in American history right. where we've been much more divided than we are now, like literally killing each other in the streets in large organized ways, <laughs> um, which mm-hmm. we are not doing now. And I don't think we will ever do again. So it made me feel better in that way, but it was also like, well, we just cannot get it together. <laughs> like Christian was writing about this almost 30 years ago. And we just cannot get it I together. Know. I thought I, I had a moment when I was reading it of like, why didn't he just make Rosenberg a woman? Because obviously this is an RBG stand in, but she wasn't benched until 93. So, which I, in my brain, she just existed on the Supreme court forever. But so right. much of the narrative around her when she died was why didn't she retire yeah. when we had a Democrat in office? Um, and so it felt like it was the same thing, like he was saying the same thing about Rosenberg, but they, she, my timing was all wrong
1: because she was immortal <laughs> until she wasn't. Right, well, in, in Rosenberg, I mean, I guess we don't, know, we don't know enough of like what the faux past history, like mm. how long has Rosenberg been old enough to retire? Yeah. Right? Should he have retired with the last president, I guess is sort of the similar question. Like in this one, he's explicitly waiting, but we don't know. So um, Robert Culp, the president doesn't have a name, interestingly, yeah. in the book or the movie. It's just the president. But Robert Culp, who plays the president, He's thinking about running for re-election, so it has to be his first term, Mm -hmm. so he can't have been in office for that long. Maybe we're supposed to think the prior president was also Republican, especially if we're thinking about, this book is written in 92, we're coming out of Reagan, Reagan, Bush, Mm -hmm. so it's been 12 years. So it could have been that Rosenberg was 79, if we sort of think of this as diverging from our own history, and rather than Clinton winning, it was another Republican Mm -hmm. winning. It could have been a long time since there was a Democrat. In that Rosenberg has been waiting a long time. Now, maybe you should retire when you're 78. That's still, I, I don't know. Briar, are you listening? Please. Please, please. Your are mousing uh, out here. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that's fascinating. You know, the, the, another one that I think we could do away with is Jensen sort of oh being closeted and being, we haven't talked about because I think it's so obvious that that is not something that would exist yeah. now. Um, also, that
0: scene in the I movie, the, I fast forward through the assassination of Jensen because it's a, yeah. such a long, awkward amount of time to spend listening to porn.
1: Michelle said the exact same thing. We have to watch Stanley Tucci maybe going to unbutton his pants. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, he's like, I, I can't say any of these words to Amanda or anybody else about <laughs> what actually is going on there. You know that I'm approved by porn. nature. And it was it's too much. It's too much. And the movie is very it's long. So... It's two and a half hours. And I think Cuddle, If much as that you can't, what I would do, what I would want, I'm not a movie maker. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so all caveats aside. But in terms of what I want, I want more Julian Denzel figuring stuff mm-hmm. out together. I just want more of it move it earlier give them more to do maybe some of the stuff that happens on their own they can do later i don't know but that's what i come for i don't come for the the machinations of Kamel and fletcher cole and Culp, sort of saying well, yeah. uh, i'm not sure that that's not what i'm looking for which is which is good for me because i start on disc two and that's <laughs> most of where that happens if i could get another 15 minutes of disc one um i would have been uh, a happy camper um, looking through my notes, now we're now we're into the um, bits and bobs mm-hmm. kinds of pieces. There, I think my fa- weirdly my f- the best line in the movie to me is given to a character we don't know the name of. My favorite lawn when, when Gray is at the um, the rehab clinic and says, uh, the, "The law school told me I could come over and get it from you." And she's like, "Well, the funny thing is they run their law school and we run our clinic." <laughs> <To Gray. laughs> Big energy from Debbie at the counter. Uh, loved her. Um there any other moments or lines that stick out to you Amanda as personal favorites
0: Um most of the Sarge stuff I love just because I love that character yeah. I don't know that that actor I worry about you son. I know <laughs> Same I also Denzel in his cabin was like a out of left oh, field he kind of thing
1: like
0: he doesn't have a cabin in the book and why does he have to go i know he can't go back to his apartment because he knows that it's bugged but like he could go to a hotel why does he have a cabin because somehow we have to get darby to him without anyone seeing because she's supposed to be out of the country so she treks through the woods with a flashlight making all the dogs bark like it's just completely i actually think
1: i think You're a good point. I had a thought about that. Let me try this on for a I think that scene exists for to give Darby some more shine Mm. of like being clever because she's faking out gray and everybody else. Right. I wanted to think I would left the country Mm -hmm. and that includes you, but also then to find him, she has that moment of like, I called the paper Mm -hmm. and told him I was your sister and you're not the only one to do research and kind of gives a wry smile where they're more intellectual tradecraft equals. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, he's like, oh, I'm dealing with. I don't have to have her under my wing like we can we can be partners in this and they sort of proceed as there but it is a little bit strange. Also I think and I don't know maybe I'm reading too much and I don't know in terms of the very subtle racial acknowledgement mm-hmm. of Denzel's in the woods by himself and you hear dogs Yeah. in the in the background and I think that he's subject to just white violence at all times mm-hmm. there was that echo to me there and I don't know how much of that was intentional but it's it's hard not to have a a black man standing alone in the woods with dogs and not have like slave fugitive Ugh, justice just so kind of overtone stuff going yeah. on. Yeah, I really love. So it does a couple of things. Oh, yeah.
0: Sorry, I was just moving left field. Uh, I lo- no, yeah, let's move it. Let's move I it. loved this scene at the end when Darby and Voyles, the FBI director, are, are talking and he's like, you know, just, so what are you going to do next? Like he just is accepting yeah. that this woman has brought down an entire government (laughs) and he's just here for it he doesn't like the president he's not on board covering a thing up if he doesn't have to like he's such a fast i think that the voiles character the fbi director is really interesting especially coming off of our own fbi director woes of the past yeah. five years um like comey and all that
1: and so he's like chaotic neutral he is chaotic neutral. neutral good chaotic like yes. i'm not sure i'm not as good as these as some people i think he's are, lawful neutral which me. i am
0: also lawful neutral so i appeal it appeals to me mm. it appeals to me Um, This like I will do what I think is right uh, as long as I don't have awful consequences, in which case I will do whatever, you know, and (laughs) because whatever, (laughs) Uh, but he's just acceptance that this 23 year old has outwitted him and everyone around him is great. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't give her like, did you have help? He doesn't give her flack. He doesn't grill her. He just accepts that she's kind of brilliant and offers to get her out of the country and lets it go. And I thought that was great.
1: That actor also brings something really, a warmth and likability also, but also a sense of, I don't, I'm not, sh- I like this guy, but I'm not sure about him, James Sicking, mm. who's one of those people, this is probably his biggest role, but you see him in a million things, and always kind of feel the same way around him. One, a, a character actor, um, I think passed away a few years ago. I imagined nope, him- Nope, still alive. Never oh. mind, never mind. <laughs> He's still alive. On. Sorry, James. I imagined we him like as,
0: you. this is so goofy, as Bar like- William Barr, in my head, because he in the book is described as essentially Santa Claus, (laughs) like physically.
1: (laughs) Yeah, stumpy kind Kind of. of, But like and and
0: like is in the Oval Office, but really secretly hates the president. And also, but is you know, the guy in charge of running this branch for a Republican and is doesn't seem particularly liberal at all. But in that way that Barr like turned out to really hate the Entirety yeah. of his life under the Trump administration.
1: So when I was... he's deep stating it, baby. Yeah, so... Doyle's a deep stater. He's a deep. When I was reading it, I
0: was like, oh, this, this dude is bar, which is kind of funny.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, he's he's pretty good. Um, let's see, the whole Morgan Garcia. I, I thought I continue to find that very compelling. Hmm. Um, with the scene of him that that video yeah. that they pull out of, kind of a great little sequence. Honestly, um, the the videotape. As a character, we get frontline yeah. videotapes. <laughs> we get videotapes like. Damn PBS. <laughs> we're very, very the VHS of PBS, big frontline energy, which is not in the book, mm-hmm. also. Um, that actually clarifies a little bit about how Darby finds out. Like, what is it that she knows that the FBI doesn't? They try to cover it. I think I still agree with you, ultimately. It's like, kind of doesn't make sense. But she remembered this thing on Frontline mm-hmm. that she had seen. And in the book, it's just she had heard some story. I don't remember how she gets turned on. It was to... like a
0: classmate was working. Uh, right. on the case or, like, knew somebody was working on the case.
1: Yeah. I, I think just from a filmic point of view, her watching the tape, Gray putting it in, then Fletcher Cole getting a, a copy of that front line and mm-hmm. then watching it kind of... And then the tape of Fletcher Cole being in the room where they apparently tape every... There's a lot of tape. Yeah. A lot of, I love that tradecraft, the very analog tape. Also, I guess you can put together a car bomb in 15 minutes <sighs> when someone's in the bank. That's how... That's all. That's all. Is that true, I Amanda? Don't. In your long experience of domestic <laughs> terrorism, how long does it take you to put a car on a for a, a beige Ford Taurus?
0: Can you still do that in cars that don't have key starters? Is another question. I don't think so. I, I
1: also don't think you can use a slim jim to get into a digital remote lock. You know, like you just that old thing you put in there. Mm-hmm. I don't think my my twenty twenty two Kia um, <laughs> even is susceptible to, to that. These kind are of my um, questions.
0: I'd be a terrible criminal.
1: Oh, horrible. I would just be so nervous and vomit, and all my cover stories would lie. I, I would be the, I'm, I'm fascinated by the analog stuff. The reported side, um, what you can and can't run, I'm still not sure. Yeah. What you need double confirmation for, what you don't need it for. I guess the important thing is I lose a little bit the stakes because once, once the FBI and then Voiles knows that there's something to it, does it really what is it that Darby and Gray are going to dig up that they never can? Is it just Garcia? Is mm. it just the affidavit from Garcia? I'm not really sure about what's at stake at the end. If they do get blown up in that car bomb, I don't think the investigation of Matisse dies. That's true, That's
0: and I don't think the FBI I, about I don't that. think the FBI would have too much trouble connecting like investigating Matisse's lawyers, but they right. would have trouble pinning the the naming of Rosenberg and Jensen on Matisse's lawyers without the memo
1: right though weirdly we don't care about Matisse we don't we care about the president's fate yeah. in the movie mm-hmm. I think right that's so there's a little bit of I don't know if you call it sleight of hand or narrative muddiness that distract us to because honestly if we do if we know they're the heroes we care about them surviving then it kind of doesn't matter right mm-hmm. like the real football here is do Darby and Greg get the story do they get a byline uh, weirdly in the book Darby writes these the story did you catch yeah. that in the book I thought that was a weird choice. I don't understand that. I I really always found it gracious that Gray gave her a byline. He has to point it out to her. But in the book, he's like, like, I got to stay up all night to write this. And I need three cups of coffee. And Darby's like, want me to do it for you? And she's like, I'll get you a typewriter. I don't know what that was about.
0: Also, for someone who's trying to hide to save her life, putting your name on the story seems weird.
1: Now we're in nitpick. Let's go. Because I've got a bunch of things. Does Darby have enough money to survive forever in the Caribbean? <laughs> she gets 200 grand from her dad's mm-hmm. death. Is that enough to survive forever in, in, in St. Martin? I don't know enough about this.
0: It doesn't feel like. Enough. In the 90s? Well, not forever. I don't know that she is intending to survive forever.
1: but... Oh, she's not in. And, and then in the movie, she's worried about getting murdered again. That's why she's on the plane. She's like, the Vitis dudes are still going to come after her after all this is over. That's oh, why yeah. she leaves. Yeah. I, I mean, it's plausible. I just never really understood because in the book. They say it, the jig is up. Mm-hmm. We're letting everyone go. So we know in the book that she's safe. In the movie, we don't really... It's unclear to me. Like, There's something like... There's a Casablanca element to the end, which I really like. But logically, I'm like, ah, what's going on <laughs>
0: here
1: exactly? Why
0: are we doing this? Why couldn't they find you in the Caribbean uh, also? like, what?
1: Nitpicks, open questions for you. Well, members. that's one
0: of my nitpicks is what, what makes you think... There's actually a line... I can't remember if it's in the book of the movie, when she's trying to run. No, it's in the movie. And Denzel is like, why do you think you can disappear? Yeah. Like, why do you think these people can't find you just because you're in a, the Caribbean? That doesn't make any sense. And she just doesn't really have any kind of answer for yeah, it. Victor
1: Matisse also lives right, in the Right,
0: you're just going closer, you know, yeah. um, which isn't <laughs> mentioned in the book, or in the movie, rather. But that's something that I, the whole time she's trying to get away, the whole time she's trying to get... Out of the country, which is another thing that ties into my earlier point about like, just let the FBI help you. What's wrong with you? You know,
1: walk into the embassy and say, here's my brief and here's an interview I'm giving. If I end up dead tomorrow, like kind of evacuate the the utility of killing her. Essentially. Yeah. Tell the story. Get it out there. Also make some copies. That's another thing that was like we didn't have. She printed it out. And she had floppy disks. Alice goes back to her copies. Mm-hmm. I, I guess there's no cloud, right? If there's a cloud, she's safe because killing her does nothing. It's on a hard drive somewhere. I also don't understand. How many copies there are where the brief is weird? Oh. Like the print copies, how many there were was super strange.
0: Yeah, I lost track. The, the, yeah, her sending no her best friend to her apartment to get to see, like, I don't know what she was there I, for. To see if it had been broken into or whatever. Seems I thought about that, too. They, they don't strange. know what
1: Darby looks like. Doesn't Alice get murdered? Right. Doesn't Alice get murdered because everyone thinks she's Darby, like the, the unit or the Matisse people? Oh, she's a 24 year old white Tulane student. She gets got right there. She gets black 100 percent. Like there. it's just a woman in
0: coming into this apartment would automatically yes. die or the apartment she's would explode. Darby. There would be like a trick, a trigger yes. on the door. Like, why? Yes. yes. Why would you do that? And for for yeah. for. For Darby, who so repeatedly says, "I can't show the, "I can't explain this to you," "I can't show this to you," everyone who touches this thing dies. You sure did just send her into your house, like.
1: <laughs> what's her? Hello. <laughs> what? Not a lot of friends with Darby for good reason. I guess no. she'll just send you into her apartment where you might just die or get shot by an Egyptian assassin. Yeah. Playing by an. Played Italian, by Stanley Tucci. <laughs> Stanley Tucci's gonna get you, <laughs> Cynthia Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> it seems so absurd like I couldn't think of a less
0: frightening movie. person to cast as an assassin right now I couldn't
1: I mean Kamel is the most sophisticated international assassin we're told so I guess if you think about sophistication is the hallmark <laughs> of Stanley <laughs> Tucci that's true <laughs> I kind of want Stanley Tucci's current persona to be like what's that movie or what's that show with um Bill Hader where Barry how about this, where Stanley Tucci plays a version of himself where he's also a for hire <laughs> for the urbane and wealthy? I would watch that show. That's like. That's a new James Bond. Is that What <laughs> if Stanley Tucci for James Bond? That's just like the world's most interesting man from the Dos Equis commercial. Yes, That's exactly. <laughs> well, he's already on the way there. Give him a silencer <laughs> oh, and an expense card. Okay, nitpick. Anyway.
0: Biggest one the entire parking garage scene, the whole thing. <laughs> the whole thing. It's just full of deus ex machina after deus ex machina. The dog just randomly. Did you not see that there's a giant guard? First of all, it's a guard dog. Like there's a Doberman in the car that doesn't start
1: barking at a useful you. amount of time to bark Right. At her, I th- was noticing. Yeah.
0: And then the, the guy chasing you conveniently plows into the car he planted a bomb in.
1: Very bad stagecraft from the unit of the <laughs> Matisse guys. Very, very tough.
0: Like I can't the whole The
1: one car you can't hit that you just put a bomb in. Hoist on your own Taurus is the Shakespeare <laughs> once said.
0: The whole thing is off why do they go up and down the stairs? No reason. It results in nothing. Like they run through the up and down the stairs in the parking garage for a while. Yeah. That changes zero outcomes. And then they just walk into Lithgow's office covered in dirt. <laughs> like-
1: I did. I do like that where he's worried about them and he's about to call him and,
0: and then he just uh, walks
1: in. <laughs> there he is covered in soot. Also bugs. I think is fascinating. The idea of like mm. everything could be bugged. I don't know how hard it is to maintain these things, to put them there, but apparently you can bug everything with stuff you get at Radio Shack. Mm. You know, Camel's bugging everyone's bugging everybody else a lot. I, I do like that stagecraft, but I think it's at that level it works. But I agree with you that anytime anyone has to run in this movie, it seems to be out over its skis a little Mm -hmm. bit, (laughs) you know, a little bit like, how are we going to, how are we going to make this more like the fugitive? And I think that's the thing I would like, I want a little more lightness. I don't think this is a pulpy thriller. It is not all the president's men. Mm. Bernstein and Woodward do not need to whisper to each other about everything. And it's just not that same level of gravitas, a little more fun, a little less male gaze, and give Denzel and Julia time to cook together longer. Those yeah. are my notes for. It. On the other hand, I will say this: the movie just crushes the book; mm-hmm. absolutely dominates it.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that.
1: Screenwriters are good. It turns out I think it's up there with Hunt in our discussions <gasps> of things that are so much better. Oh, better than, than the, the actual yes, book yes. themselves. I would
0: agree with yeah. that. I thought you meant just generally yeah. as a product, and I was about to—I was about to come through.
1: Oh no, no, Amanda, <laughs> you know I. Was. I was
0: I shocked; hence the gasping. No, it is. I would agree. Yes, yes. it is much better than the source material.
1: As a tribute, so shout out to screenwriters. I think that's one thing I've learned over time, is that sometimes, a lot of times, the movie's better in the book, especially if you like the movie. (laughs) If you like the movie, there's a good chance that the screenwriters did something pretty fascinating. And I think they did a, Pukula did a wonderful job here with the screenplay. Even if I just wish that we weren't quite so like in the in church talking to each Mm -hmm. other. Last notes, Amanda, you want to get in before the, um, we've, we've, we submit ourselves to the FBI and get on the plane with no flight plan and get <laughs> out of
0: here? Uh, no, my, my last thing on my little piece of paper here is Stanley Tucci in all caps with four question marks after it. And I already, I already ranted about that. So
1: You got that out. Mm-hmm. Amanda, thank <laughs> you so much. That's The Pelican Brief by John Grisham, written and directed yes. by Alan J. Pakula, starring Julia Roberts and the great Denzel Washington. We'll talk to you all. Next time. There might even be some toil and trouble coming up. (laughs) I don't want to show my hand or anything at some point in the future. Thanks so much, Amanda.